You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash seanmunger, and if you become a patron, I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. Mrs. Vitted Bender at number 31 Rheingau Street reports to the public and her customers that they are provided with a skilled glazier journeyman and can serve everyone to their best ability. She therefore asks for the approval of those inclined with the assurance of cheap quality service. Newspaper advertisement in the Avis Blatt of Basel, Switzerland, November 1816. Two hundred and ten years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was the time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 49, Theo the Pipe Smoker. Sometime in or around the second decade, but most likely in November 1816, a poor man from a poor neighborhood of Basel, Switzerland, called Klein Basel, died and was buried in the yard of a small urban church. This man was entirely unremarkable. He led an ordinary life, did no great deeds for which he would be remembered in the history books, and is just one of the many tens of millions of people who lived and died between 1810 and 1820, about whom nothing is remembered, much less written down. Yet somehow this man, whose name we're not even sure of, has traveled through time to another era. His life, and especially his death, have become the subject of intensive research, considerable speculation, and even some controversy. Few quote-unquote ordinary people from the era of the second decade have ever had such attention paid to them. It's a historical accident that this man came to be the focus of this attention, but sometimes accidents of history are the genesis of understanding. This man's skeleton was discovered and unearthed in 1984. No headstone or other grave marker was left to attest to who he was. But we do know one thing about him that's unmistakable. He smoked a pipe. The skull of the man still had a number of teeth left in both the upper and lower jaw. 
Dental health was pretty terrible at the beginning of the 19th century, and this guy was no different. A lot of his teeth were rotten, crooked, or otherwise in pretty bad shape. But between his upper and lower teeth on the left side of his mouth, the archaeologists who examined his remains found two oval-shaped holes. The teeth were scanned with an electron microscope around these holes, and the results revealed a series of fine scratches on the tooth enamel. This, plus the shape of the holes themselves, were proof positive that the person whose skull was being examined was a heavy smoker. Many people in Europe, especially men of the lower classes, smoked tobacco using cheap, mass-produced ceramic pipes. The clay from these pipes, when fired, was harder than tooth enamel. If you had the end of one of these pipes stuck between your teeth day after day, year after year for a significant portion of your lifetime, you would develop exactly the same little oval-shaped notches found on the teeth of this anonymous resident of Basel. This characteristic, and the place where he was found, give this person the name we know him by today, Theo the Pipe Smoker. He was found near the old church of St. Theodore in Basel. That's where Theo comes from. As I say in the intro, this podcast is about stories, true stories, of the 18-teens, the second decade of the 19th century. On this show, I've talked about many large-stature personalities, from Napoleon to King George III, presidents, and emperors. But as noteworthy as these people are, it's the stories of ordinary people from the time that don't get told nearly as often, and from which we can learn a tremendous amount about what life was really like two centuries ago. Theo the pipe smoker was not a king, an emperor, or a president, but he's one of the most interesting people I've ever come across in my research for this show. There are many things, most things, we just don't know about his life and never will. Nevertheless, his story, whatever it is, whatever its possibilities are, is so close to the core mission of this podcast that there's no way I couldn't feature it. So, with the understanding that we can't answer every question, or perhaps even the most basic questions about his life or his death, let's do our best to examine the 200-year-old mystery of this person, Theo, the anonymous, or perhaps not anonymous, pipe smoker of Basel, Switzerland. Good evening. Before we get into the substance of tonight's show, I think I owe a few words to the listeners and fans of this podcast. Please bear with me. It's been a very long time since the last episode of this show. That episode, number 48, went up on December 19th, 2019. At that time, the coronavirus epidemic was just beginning, unbeknownst to most of us at the time. Patient Zero, a man in Wuhan, China, began experiencing symptoms on December 1st. I don't need to tell you what's been happening in the world since that time. I would say this has been the most extraordinary upheaval on a global scale since the end of World War II. The world simply isn't the same anymore. In that sense, every previous episode of Second Decade was recorded in a different era. Since the beginning of this year, 2020, I've been working on a number of different projects. I devoted a lot of my time to creating and delivering history courses online. If you go to my website, www.seanmunger.com, and go to History Courses, you can see what I'm offering. I have one course for free, several are paid, and there are more coming. I also have a free webinar on the Vietnam War coming up on November 17th, 2020. 
One of the things that's kept me away is that I've started another podcast. It's not a historical show, although it does often concern matters of environmental history, which as you know is my expertise. The show is called Green Screen, and it's the environmental movie podcast. The show where I, with my co-host Cody Clymer, analyze and review popular movies that deal with environmental themes or in which the environment plays a significant role. As of this recording, we've done 20 episodes of that show. I won't say it's for everybody. I'd say the audience for Green Screen and that of Second Decade have a small overlap, but I have heard from listeners who like both shows. Just a warning, we do occasionally use some racy language on the show or discuss adult themes, so it's not quite as clean as this one. The elephant in the room, of course, is the future of this show. I can't promise you with absolute certainty that there will continue to be episodes of Second Decade coming out with any degree of regularity. I started this podcast four years ago, and four years, three if you subtract the lengthy delay between the last episode and this one, even three years is a long time to devote to a specific project. That said, there are many subjects I did not get to cover on this show that I wanted to, and which I still might. The Norwegian Constitution of 1814, the Panic of 1819, the Missouri Compromise, the Presidential Election of 1820, and various other topics have been on my bucket list for a very long time. I may or I may not get to them. I had a vague plan to close the show for all time with a series on Napoleon's imprisonment on St. Helena. It's possible I may still do that, I just can't say for certain. I would ask for you to remain subscribed. A new episode may pop up without warning, as this one did. Should there not be one for a while, let me take this opportunity to thank every one of you who's listened throughout the years, and subscribed, and liked, and reached out. I've had some wonderful fans out there, and you know who you are. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. And now, Theo, the pipe smoker. Theodore's Kirche, the Church of St. Theodore, sits on the right or north bank of the Rhine River, which winds its way through the ancient city of Basel, Switzerland. This part of Europe has been inhabited since ancient times. The history of Basel goes back even before the Roman settlement of Augusta Rorica, only a few miles away from today's central city. Basel was important strategically and economically throughout the Middle Ages because it was the site of the only bridge, the middle bridge, across the Rhine in the entire region. Although a church existed on the site as early as 1084, the present church, the one that gave Theo his name, was constructed in the mid-13th century, most likely beginning in 1259. Basel, like most European cities, suffered the various slings and arrows of medieval and early modern history. The Black Death ravaged it. Numerous Jews in Basel were massacred in 1349, blamed unfairly for the spread of the pandemic. An earthquake in 1356 severely damaged the city and the church. 1529 was an important date. In that year, Basel became Protestant, an early adherent of the new denomination that was remaking Christianity across Europe. Klein Basel, the neighborhood around St. Theodore's Church, was a working-class area. There were sawmills here, tanneries, tobacco warehouses, all sorts of lower-scale businesses, many of which were polluting, which is why the area attracted them. It was common in Europe, for example, to locate tanneries along riverbanks, so they could dump their used carcasses and vats of urine directly into the river. It was common everywhere, actually. Kleinbasel was not a very healthy environment. Indeed, Kleinbasel was something of a cesspool. The canals and gutters that flowed through the area were filled with trash and various kinds of crap, human and animal alike. 
The problems got worse in spring during the heavy rains. The working-class families who lived in Klein Basel often had many children, sometimes ten or more. Infant mortality was extremely high. As a result, houses and tenements were extremely crowded. They generated huge amounts of human and animal waste, and they bred disease. Social distancing would not have worked in 18th century Basel. Epidemics of cholera and typhus were common. The Grim Reaper was pretty busy in this neighborhood. Most ordinary people were buried in cemeteries associated with religious centers, churchyards. This practice began in the early Middle Ages, but throughout the early modern period, and especially into the 18th and 19th centuries, numerous ancient churchyards in Europe were bursting at the seams with the dead. The churchyards of Paris, to use a famous example, literally oozed rot from bodies that had been crammed into them. This was why the disgusting job of cleaning out the old churchyards and reburying the bones in what became the Paris catacombs began in 1780. A similar problem was happening to Basel. In 1779, a plot of ground to the west of St. Theodore's Church was purchased by a member of the town council, who hailed from the important Marian family that basically ran much of Basel. This plot of ground, formerly a vineyard, was going to be the expansion zone for St. Theodore's Cemetery Churchyard, now jam-packed with the dead. In fact, the plot was named Marianscher Totenacher, which means Marian's Graveyard. Funerals started there pretty much immediately. Marion's graveyard was what you would call a potter's field. It was a cemetery for the poor. As Kleinbasel was a working-class area, this makes sense. But as is common among Poverty Row cemeteries in Europe in this area, they basically packed them in like sardines. Marion's graveyard ran out of room and had to be expanded in 1805 and again in 1831. And still, it wasn't enough. In 1814, the neighborhood suffered a particularly bad outbreak of typhus. This disease flourishes when sick, malnourished people are crammed together in close quarters. The reason why typhus was a killer during World War II, where it was endemic in POW camps and concentration camps. It also struck the rookeries, the slums of Europe, in the second decade. On February 25, 1814, at the height of the typhus epidemic, the Basel City Fathers decreed that victims of the disease should be buried in deep graves, not shallow ones which were common in potter's fields. The reason for this was pretty grisly. As bodies decayed, gases and liquids from decomposition would often bubble to the surface, if the graves were shallow. Thus, infected corpses had to be buried deep down, for fear that noxious pestilence would seep through the ground and start a new cycle of infection. This wasn't an idle fear, By the 1830s, nearly 50 years since the expansion graveyard opened, the whole area around St. Theodore's Church stank like rotting flesh. During heavy rains, water infused with rotten material from the bodies under the ground would rise into the gutters and channels of the neighborhood. The whole place was a health menace. On May 1, 1833, Marion's graveyard was closed to further burials. During the time Marion's graveyard was operational, The records of St. Theodore show that a total of 4,334 people died in the Klein-Basel neighborhood. Most of them were buried in this plot. Eventually, as the years went by, the health problems associated with the cemetery receded. Klein-Basel's economic base began to change. In 1855, a schoolhouse was built on the site of the old graveyard. Eventually, modern urban infrastructure, water mains, pipelines, electrical cables, buildings with concrete foundations, 
began to take over the old city. In 1984, a new heat pump had to be installed in the old schoolhouse built on top of Marion's graveyard. Apparently, the schoolhouse was still in use. Workmen began excavations for the new pipes to support this infrastructure. This happened on a street radiating northwesterly from St. Theodore's Church called Rebgasse. As they began digging, they encountered human bones, a lot of them. As often happens with urban excavations that discover bones, at least when they're sure it's not a crime scene, archaeologists were called in. A total of 24 graves were found on the Rebgasse in 1984. As it turned out, one of them couldn't be completely removed. An underground wall had been built sometime in the intervening years and literally cut across the skeleton's feet. The archaeologists sawed off the bones of the skeleton's legs to recover him. This, as it turned out, was Theo the pipe smoker. If you're wondering whether Theo and the others were just buried in the ground without coffins, don't be embarrassed. I wondered that too. In researching that matter, I learned more than I cared to know about what happens to the human body after death and burial. Except in the cases of the rich, who can afford coffins of lead or stone, coffins are usually temporary. A small wooden coffin, the proverbial pine box you see in every Western movie, tends to disintegrate pretty quickly in the ground. In many cases, coffins like these are crushed during the process of burial by the weight of the ground above them. Theo was buried in a coffin, but there were very few traces of it left by the time the bones were found. Under normal circumstances, a human body takes about 10 to 12 years to decay completely to a skeleton. The bones discovered in the 1984 St. Theodore's Church excavation were brought to the Museum of Natural History in Basel. There they sat in a drawer for 20 years, largely forgotten. Indeed, no closer examination would have been made of these bones, and I would not be recording this episode about them, if not for the curator of the Natural History Museum, Dr. Gerhard Hutz. In 2004, as part of what you might call a live-fire exercise for advanced anthropology students, Dr. Holtz assigned some students to examine human remains held in the museum's research archives. For a while, Holtz had thought that an extensive research project on the 24 graves found in 1984 could shed some light on the lives of ordinary working-class people in Basel in the early 19th century, which is when he assumed the graves were dug. There might also be possibilities for a book. This was an interesting take on local history. The vast majority of archaeological and historical work done on old human remains have focused on people of high economic or social stature. That's understandable, because those are the kinds of graves that tend to be preserved and to survive. Think about it. Most of the dead people who wind up as primary sources in history or archaeology are, or were, pretty important folks. Tutankhamun, the pharaoh from 18th dynasty Egypt, whose tomb was cracked open in 1922, or Lady Dai, the Chinese noblewoman whose grave was discovered in 1968, are paradigm examples. Potter's fields, though, tend not to survive for very long. Take, for example, the largest cemetery for indigents in the United States, which is located on the deeply depressing place known as Hearts Island in New York Harbor, where nearly a million people, most of them poor, have been buried since 1869. The graves on Hearts Island are recycled about every 40 years. It's a nice way of saying that the bones are dug up, discarded, usually crushed, and the grave sites reused. On Hearts Island, the gravediggers are usually convicts, and they've been very busy 
since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. This was the case in Europe, too. A famous story, possibly apocryphal, involves the body of composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Supposedly one of the gravediggers, Joseph Rothmeyer, who knew who Mozart was, put a piece of wire around the neck of his corpse before it was interred in a potter's field in Vienna in 1791. Graves in that cemetery were recycled every ten years. Rothmeyer was supposedly still working there in 1801, and when they dug up the pauper's grave, he found the skeleton with the loop of wire around its neck and preserved the skull, which is now in the possession of a Mozart foundation in Salzburg. I can't vouch for the historical veracity of that story, but it is a story told about Mozart. The point is that it was rare to find intact graves of poor people from Europe dating from this period. An examination of the Basel graves unearthed in 1984 could be of considerable historical significance. But the first and most important task facing the Basel researchers was a very basic one. Determining whose bones those really were, now sitting in a metal drawer in the Museum of Natural History, and determining when he died, how, and what his life in Klein Basel might have been like. This was a historical detective story in the making, and it was one that, just possibly, might end in a 200-year-old murder. The team that handled the task of trying to analyze and identify Theo the Pipe Smoker was called the Basel Citizen Science Program. A total of 69 people are listed as having worked on the Theo case between July 2007 and August 2011. Some were students or other professionals associated with the Natural History Museum or the University of Basel. Others were citizen volunteers from the local community. The whole thing was an experiment unprecedented in forensic and historical scholarship. The task of identifying Theo depended on comparing two different kinds of sources. First, the clues from Theo's bones, which would be gleaned from high-tech analysis, and second, the historical record, documents and the kind of stuff you find in libraries. I'm unabashedly a fan of that second category of sources. This is qualitatively different than other historical mysteries involving recovered bodies from the past. Take Utzi, the Iceman, a human mummy from the Copper Age discovered on a mountain in Austria in 1991. In that case, or others like him, you don't have historical records to check against. Everything you can learn will come from analysis of the body itself. You may remember that I said there were 4,334 burials in Klein Basel between 1779 and 1833. We know that down to the exact number because their names, ages, and other details about them were recorded in the parish records of St. Theodore's Church. Theo was almost certainly on that list, but narrowing down which name he was, or even a small universe of names he could have had, was not going to be easy. Theo's teeth were one of the early major clues. Teeth, as it turns out, are a lot like trees. Layers of enamel or dental cement cover your teeth on a periodic basis. It's not exactly analogous to tree rings. The subject of dendrochronology, study of tree rings, has come up before on this show, especially when we talk about climate change-related topics, but the process is at least somewhat similar. 
A thick layer of cement apparently forms when a person is under prolonged stress in their lives. Given what's happened to most of us in the last year, forensic pathologists of the future are going to be able to recognize the year 2020 in most of our teeth long after we're dead. Anyway, the analysis of Theo's teeth showed the oval gaps where he chewed the end of his clay pipe. We knew that already. But the dental cement analysis indicated that he was probably about 30 when he died. Additionally, there was an especially thick layer of dental cement dating from the middle of his life, about the age 16. We have no idea what kind of stress he was under, but things seem to have gotten a bit better for him later in life. Taking the list of burials at St. Theodore's Church and narrowing it down to men, you can usually tell the gender of a skeleton from the pelvis in most cases. In any event, men were much more likely to be habitual smokers than women. Narrowing down to men, cut the list of potentials down to 2,069 names. Of those, the ones between the ages of 26 and 34 meant a manageable but still dauntingly large list of 134 potential candidates. The position of Theo's grave also proved to be significant. He was not buried deeply, so he probably wasn't a victim of typhus. And the orientation of human remains which direction people were laid facing apparently changed over time in this cemetery. From these factors, Theo seems to have died sometime after the epidemic of 1814. Due to the location of the grave itself, he wasn't in the last batch of burials either. As you recall, the cemetery was closed in 1833. The target date was thus either the 1820s or the previous decade, the second decade. This knocked 134 candidates down to just 25. Next came an isotope analysis of Theo's bones and teeth. In addition to the dental enamel thing I told you about earlier, deposits of particular isotopes in human bones, particularly strontium, can yield information on where a person lived during their lifetimes. Each region has a unique signature of strontium. The results of the analysis in Theo's case showed a match with the local fingerprint of Kleinbasil. That's not surprising considering he was buried there and obviously lived there. But strontium is typically deposited in a person's teeth as the teeth themselves are developing during childhood. What this means is that Theo was most likely born in Basil and lived there for at least the first part of his life, if not his whole life. Remember that, that's an important clue. The researchers then turned to any indications that his bones could provide as to what he did for a living. This analysis focused on the shape, thickness, and symmetry of Theo's bones, particularly his arm bones. These shapes were compared with the bones of people profiled in a number of professional groups. According to the sources I read, Theo's bones were not consistent with heavy manual labor. He probably wasn't a logger or a bricklayer or a ditch digger or something like that. He was right-handed, another important clue, but Dr. Holtz and his researchers thought it was more likely that he did some sort of skilled work. He could have been a tailor. He might have made rope. He could have baked bread for a living or painted houses. Perhaps he was apprenticed to somebody as a teenager. That was how skilled trades were often developed at the time of the second decade. The two oval notches in his teeth told the researchers more than just the fact that Theo was a heavy smoker. In order to make those marks in his teeth, Theo would have had to have had that pipe in his mouth almost all the time, probably during working hours. 
Working class people in the 18 teens didn't get a lot of time off. The eight hour workday is strictly a 20th century invention. He wouldn't have been allowed to smoke constantly if he worked a lot with wood or textiles. Again, this points to skilled trades, tanners, a clerk maybe. He could have worked at a factory of some kind. People in cities in the second decade tended to live pretty close to where they worked. And here's where historical sources come in. Directories, newspapers, particularly those with commercial ads, classifieds, help-wanted ads, and the church records of St. Theodore's itself. So, to sum up what we know, we're looking for a man who died most likely between 1810 and 1829 at roughly age 30. That would put his birth year between 1780 and 1799. This man would have lived in Basel during his childhood. He was right-handed, he worked in a skilled trade, he smoked heavily and had bad teeth, he had some terrible period of stress, perhaps hunger or disease in his 16th year, which would put it between 1796 and 1815. Additionally, he was 5 foot 3 inches tall, a bit on the short side, even for the early 19th century. As for his cause of death, there was no evidence on the bones. If he died by violence, whatever killed him must have damaged the soft tissues, but not the bones that were found. So he wasn't shot or bludgeoned. Disease was rampant in Klein-Basel in this period, but Theo probably didn't die of typhus. We know that from the position of his grave. So where does that leave us compared to what was known about men of that age and profile whose deaths were recorded in the parish register of St. Theodore's Church? It left precisely 12 people. Once the twelve, the dirty dozen of St. Theodore's churchyard, were identified, genealogists went to work. The next phase of the search would be to determine if any of these twelve had descendants who were still alive in the 21st century, and who would be willing to donate DNA to test against genetic material found in Theo's bones. This is a tricky business, and there is a lot of technical issues with it. I don't pretend to understand all of those issues. On March 12, 2010, the Basel Citizen Science Program announced to the Swiss press both the list of the 12 names of men who had died and been buried in St. Theodore's churchyard and 15 descendants of those particular men who themselves might have descendants still living at that time, as gleaned from family history records. The call from the researchers was for anyone who was related to those 15 descendants and who wished to help the research project to get in touch with them. The 15 descendants were as interesting as the original 12. They ranged from one Otto Broglie, born 1887, died 1924, who lived in Mühlhausen, Germany, to Eugene Spittler, born 1866, died 1937, in Baraderos, Argentina. The latest of the 15 descendants had been alive as recently as 1985. The call was at least partially successful. 20 people came forward claiming they were related to the descended 15. Unfortunately, DNA analysis would prove to be less than a slam dunk. The DNA that could be isolated from Theo the pipe smoker's bones proved to be only mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited only through women. Thus, all the tracing would ideally have to go through the sisters of the dirty dozen. Not all of them had sisters. Having to go through mothers and aunts apparently made the possible matches weaker for reasons I don't fully understand. DNA analysis was able to eliminate one of the dozen candidates. The others remained possibilities. Dr. Hutz and his researchers liked some more than others. The 11 remaining candidates, the names which could possibly be put to those formerly anonymous bones unearthed in the St. Theodore's churchyard, 
are as follows. Jacob Hedinger, born 1789, died age 27, factory worker. Friedrich Vonlich, born 1783, died age 31, baker. Franz Georg Perrot, born 1793, died age 26, a trade clerk. Valentin Kunz, born 1789, died age 33, soap maker. Johann Schmid, born 1782, died age 33, mill maker. Niklaus Lang, born 1794, died age 28, trade clerk. Johann Marion, born 1784, died age 30, occupation unknown, but his father was a rope maker, suggesting he was probably in the rope trade. Johann Gessler, born 1782, died age 32, worked at a tannery. Peter Kestenholz, born 1789, died age 29, occupation tinker, a maker and repairer of household tools. Tinker Taylor, soldier, spy, well, maybe not quite. And the last two, candidates number one and two, which Dr. Holtz regarded as by far the likeliest to actually be Theo the pipe smoker. Let's take them in order. And in doing so, we'll gain at last a glimpse of what Theo's life might have been like. By complete coincidence, candidates one and two happened to die within 48 hours of one another, between November 14th and 16th, 1816 smack in the middle of the second decade. Achilles Aiton had a hard life. We don't know that much about it, but through what we do know, we can be sure that starvation, disease, and family tragedy stalked this young man throughout his short life. Achilles Aiton, number one on the list, was born on March 2nd, 1786 in Basel, and his birth was recorded in the church register of St. Theodore's Church, the same church that would record his death 30 years later. Achilles was from a large family. His father, at some point in his life, worked as a city soldier for the city of Basel. That job paid about 10 francs a month, basically starvation wages, and Achilles had six brothers and sisters. A clue appears in the baptismal register that indicates the Aiton family was particularly indigent. Achilles' godparents were prominent, a local professor of theology and a city councillor who earned a fortune in the dye trade. The young child was named after this second godfather, Achilles. Rich people sometimes served as the godparents of the children of indigent families on the public dole. The family was apparently not originally from Basel. This is another clue that they were especially poor. In Europe in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, a process of urbanization was going on, people coming to cities from the hinterland seeking jobs and opportunity as land and agricultural opportunities shrank in rural areas. Three of the Aiton's seven kids died in infancy. This too was pretty common in the period, where infant mortality carried off almost half of the children born in poor conditions. As I alluded to earlier, cities were especially bad, being rife with disease, bad sanitation, and environmental hazards, not to mention crime and lots of opportunities for accidents. Indeed, another of the Aiton children drowned in the River Rhine at the age of 13. If Achilles Aiton was Theo the pipe smoker, the period of stress and hardship that gave him that thick layer of dental cement on his teeth at age 16 would have occurred in the year 1802. We can only speculate what the basis of this hardship was. The father might have been out of work family could have been starving, there might have been disease, 
It's just not known, but it could have been any number of things. We know that Achilles Eitens' father eventually died in a poorhouse in nearby Liestal, Switzerland. Two of his sisters had children out of wedlock, pretty common occurrence among women of the urban poor. Achilles himself never married, at least there's no record of a marriage in the St. Theodore's records. Likely he was single. The family does not seem to have ever had a significant amount of money. We don't know what Achilles Eitin did for a living, nor is the cause of his death recorded. But we know that he died on November 14, 1816. That was a Thursday. If he was Theo the pipe smoker, he was probably buried on that day or possibly the next one. The poor were not generally embalmed on this period, and common practice for sanitary measures would have been to get them under the ground as quickly as possible. That's the first of the top two candidates, so one apparently favored by Dr. Holtz. Apparently, a descendant of Achilles Eitin was located in the United States, and as of late 2017, the research team made an attempt to get him to contribute DNA for comparison. Either this person was unwilling, or the DNA sample was inconclusive. Despite a search, I was unable to find any announcement of the results of this test. The second candidate is more interesting, and makes for a much better story. Christian Friedrich Bender was born December 23, 1783. Notably, he was not born in Basel, but in Bouwiller, France, in the region of Alsace. It's not known when he or his family came to Basel, but he was there by 1806 when he married a Basel woman named Sarah Bowler. Two years later, he joined a guild in Basel. Christian Bender was a glazier, an artisan who made and fired glass tiles, which were commonly used in Central Europe, particularly in stoves. The couple had nine children. Five of those were still alive in 1816. They lived in a small house at number 21 Vreingasse, only a few blocks, less than 1,500 feet from St. Theodore's Church. Judging from its appearance on Google Maps, the building that today occupies number 21 Rheingasse appears to me to have been built in the 20th century, but it's possible that it's the same one, heavily remodeled. It is a narrow building front, like it might have been in the second decade. There's a nail salon and boutique on the ground level today. There's some evidence that Christian Bender was of unsound mind. Testimony concerning his death, principally from his wife, held that he suffered from a mental illness and quote-unquote religious doubts. Unlike Achilles Eitin, we know at least something about how Christian Bender died. At about 6 o'clock in the morning of Saturday, November 16, 1816, remember Achilles died on Thursday, Bender, according to his wife, stood up, took a razor, and plunged it into his own throat. His wife launched herself at him to try to stop him, but he pushed her away and cut himself again with the razor. Hideously, Bender is said to have slashed his own throat twice. He quickly bled to death. The story of Bender's death is not quite so straightforward, however. Three investigations of it occurred on that same day, November 16th, probably the day Bender was buried at St. Theodore's churchyard. There was apparently some controversy about where his body was found. Sarah Bender claimed he slashed his own throat while standing up, but yet the sheets of his bed were covered with blood. An examination of the wounds in Christian Bender's throat showed that the muscles on the right side of his neck were completely severed. Comparatively, there was little damage to the muscles on the left side. The cuts would be deepest where he plunged the knife in, that is, on the right side of his neck, moving downward diagonally to the left. And remember, there were two cuts, 
the first one, and then the second one after Sarah tried to grab the knife away from him and he swatted her away. Both were made the same way, top right to bottom left. This makes the most sense if Bender was holding the knife with his left hand. But as you recall, Theo the pipe smoker was right-handed. These clues are circumstantial, but they indicate that perhaps the wife's story isn't entirely correct. But it's at least possible, more than possible, that Christian Friedrich Bender was murdered, most likely by his wife. Did Dr. Holtz and the Basel Citizen Science Program discover evidence of a 200-year-old murder? This would certainly be a dramatic end to the story of Theo the pipe smoker. Alas, there's a lot of suppositions. I don't think we can damn Sarah Bender on this flimsy evidence alone. And Theo's skeleton is no help. The vertebra that might have shown indications of a knife cut to the throat was one of the few bones they were not able to recover. All we know is that we're not sure how Christian Bender made his exit, except that his last moments on earth were violent, bloody, and painful. I doubt anyone who works at the nail salon or the flower shop at number 21 Rheingasse today knows much of this story or what happened there so long ago. Even if it was, as Sarah Bender insisted, a suicide, there's reason why she might not have been totally truthful with the police. Suicides were heavily stigmatized in this period. In fact, the bodies of people who committed suicide were not buried within churchyards, but usually outside of them. Sarah may have pleaded that her husband was mentally ill so as to avoid this. If it was murder, was there a motive? It's hard to say. A week after Christian's death, Sarah, the widow, put an advertisement in the local Basel newspaper announcing that the tile glazing shop that her husband operated was again open for business, now with a journeyman glazier, presumably filling in for her deceased husband. The text of that advertisement was quoted at the beginning of this episode. Did she do it to get control of the glazing business? Or in the poor, hardscrabble life of Klein Basel in the second decade, did she hire the journeyman and reopen the business simply because she had no viable alternative to keep food on the table? Remember, the Benders had five living children. I have not seen the burial register from St. Theodore's Church for November 1816. Indeed, primary sources of this episode are pretty thin. Most of the sources I had to use were descriptive or secondary sources. Recall that Achilles Aiton and Christian Bender died very close in time to one another. Achilles on Thursday, Christian on Saturday morning. The gravediggers at St. Theodore's Church had a busy weekend in November 1816. One question I would like to know the answer to is, did anyone else in the neighborhood die and happen to be buried between those two? I can only suppose that if the burial spaces in the churchyard were used in sequential order, that Achilles Aitin and Christian Bender were buried next to one another. There were 24 skeletons recovered in 1984. Are the odds on that the museum has both of their skeletons, and whichever one of the two is not Theo the pipe smoker is the other man? I can't answer this question with what I know at this time. Having given you the two possibilities, personally, I believe that the true identity of Theo the pipe smoker is Achilles Aitin, not Christian Bender. In this, I agree with Dr. Hutz. Here's why. We know that Achilles Aitin was born in Basel and apparently lived there for all his life. Theo the pipe smoker, as you recall, was probably born there or at least lived there as a child. As the strontium signature in his teeth is a match for the geographical patterns of strontium in the Klein Basel area. Christian Bender was born elsewhere in France. 
We don't know when he moved to Basel, so this doesn't absolutely rule him out. But Achilles fits a little more closely with what we know. Secondly, Achilles seems to have been, well, poorer than Christian. We don't know what he did for a living, but the family was on the public dole for a while at least. Christian Bender, as an experienced tile glazier and a man with multiple children, seems to have had at least a chance at some economic success. He was, in fact, a member of a guild. The desperately poor situation of Achilles Aitin's family again fits better the period of extreme distress that he was in at age 16 during the year 1802. I just get a vibe from Bender that however marginal a living being a glazier might have been, he might have had more going for him than Achilles did. Finally, the murder hypothesis is for me a little far-fetched. Despite their investigation, the authorities ultimately accepted Sarah Bender's story of how her husband died, meaning suicide motivated by mental illness. Recall that she had to scramble to hire a journeyman glazier to keep the business going. Why, as a lower-class woman with five kids to feed, would she kill off her main hope of keeping the family going economically? If the cuts made to Christian Bender's throat were made by a left-handed person, as it seems logical to suppose they were, an easy explanation presents itself. He did commit suicide, and he must have been left-handed, which Theo the pipe smoker was not. Thus, I think Achilles Aitin is our man. It's seductively easy to get pulled into parlor games like this, heaping supposition upon supposition. The truth is we don't know, and we may never. But what we do know is that Theo the pipe smoker was a real person. He lived a hard and challenging life in the poor quarter of Basel in the second decade. In November 1816, he died and was given a pauper's burial. It's only an accident of history that so much time, effort, and money has been spent 200 years later to learn the secrets we might have known then just by talking to him for five minutes. While the investigations were going on, sculptors working with the researchers created, from the dimensions of Theo's skull, a model of what his head and face might have looked like during life. It's a haunting image. Here's a young man with a thin face, deep cheekbones, a shallow chin, and a wisp of beard. He rather looks like a fellow I went to college with. There is, of course, a clay pipe sticking out of the left side of his mouth. If you were to walk the streets around St. Theodore's Church in Basel in 1816, this is probably how you'd recognize him, and how he's been remembered now more than two centuries later. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor and leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Let them know that this show is back from the dead, at least for a while. One of the major historical sources for this episode is an article in Der Spiegel magazine online, science section, called in English, The Theo Case, Did His Wife Kill Him? by Guido Kleinhubert, December 27, 2017, available online. I'll put a link to this article on the webpage, but be warned, it is in German. The theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead, by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Listen to my other podcast, Green Screen, which is available on the Apple Store, Google Podcasts, and all the major podcatchers. Those of you who like the environmental history aspects of this show will probably enjoy Green Screen. You can visit my website at seanmunger.com and see the online courses that are available now. Also remember, I've got that webinar on Vietnam coming up on November 17th, 2020. 
This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.